Before we get started, a quick disclosure. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. With that, hello and welcome to the Range of Capital podcast. This is a 15-minute long podcast, and the clock starts now. I'm Andrew Walker, a portfolio manager at Rangeley, and with me as always my co-host and Rangeley's founder, Chris Demuth. It is Monday, June 27th, and today we're going to lead off by talking about the Russell Reconstitution and how it can present opportunities for investors, and then we're going to discuss one of, fa- uh, one of Chris's favorite dollar alternatives, the Bitcoin. Uh, so Chris, I'm going to jump in with an overview on the Russell Reconstitution, and then why don't you come move in and talk about why it can be such a fertile hunting ground for investors. Sounds good. Okay, so uh, just an overview. The Russell 3000, it's an index that seeks to benchmark the entire U.S. stock market. Uh, it does, does this by tracking the largest 3,000 U.S. stocks. That's about 98% of the U.S. public equity market. So for all intents and purposes, you can think about it as uh, very similar to the S&P 500, which looks to track the 500 largest companies. Uh, but there is one. there are a couple differences, but one big one is that uh, the Russell 3000 only reconstitutes once per year. Uh, and they do this on in, at the end of June, whereas the S&P 500 kind of reconstitutes. That's adding and subtracting members throughout the year. You know, if a company is bought out during the year, the S&P 500 will immediately remove and replace them, always has 500. The Russell 3000 can dip below 3,000 stocks or above 3,000 stocks. Uh, so during the reconstitution, the Russell will add any companies that have grown into being one of the largest 3,000 companies while removing any companies that have fallen out of the top 3,000. So kind of as a simple example, if company A has grown to a market cap of 200 million, and that makes it the kind of 25th, 2500th largest stock in the US, it'll get added to the Russell 3000 during a reconstitution. And then the next year, if it falls to 100 million, and that means it's like the 4000th largest stock, it'll get removed from the Russell index the next June. Uh, so that's an overview of what the reconstitution is. It just happened last Friday. And why don't you talk about why we kind of like this and see opportunities in the reconstitution? Well, you know, it's uh, sometimes considered to be unattractive to take advantage of a situation or be opportunistic or exploitative, but I've always thought those were compliments. (laughs) And in this case... Uh, there are a lot of opportunities. One is just in terms of the structure of these indices. They are not corrected by float, just market cap, mm-hmm. which I think is just a, a bug. So uh, the, just to define that for people who might not, float, the S&P 500, if I own 90% of a company and it's worth $200 million, its float is $20 because I own 180 of that $200 million. The Russell 3000 does not adjust for that. And there are certain types of companies uh, that, by their nature, have a much smaller float uh, relative to the market cap, mm-hmm. uh, certain types of financial institutions that we regularly look at. And when that happens, it just magnifies the impact of coming in and out of these indices. The people who manage them, I believe, under no circumstances have any kind of uh, performance compensation. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if there was something that was kind of quirky and they could just wait a few more days or bleed in or out uh, with a little bit more finesse, I think they'd probably get fired. I mean, they would be breaking the rules. Uh, and so they obey the rules uh, and we uh, take advantage of it. But Okay, so the float piece can magnify the opportunity. Yes. But I think what creates the opportunity is when the Russell 3000 is reconstituted, it creates forced buyers and sellers. If you are an index fund... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On uh, In this case, on June 24th, if company A was in the index and was getting kicked out, you have to sell at completely price-insensitive levels. Yes. It must be out of your fund. 
Similarly, if company A is coming into the index fund, you must buy at completely price insensitive levels. And now for a stock with tons of float, that might not make too much of a difference. But for these small float stocks that you're talking about, that can have a huge impact on the companies and it can send stocks kind of screaming one way or the other from their uh from their intrinsic value. Go ahead. I also find that it magnifies other factors. So if something was otherwise a takeover candidate and then it's about to get added or it was being kicked out and it had some kind of scandal or something, it really kind of dries up one or the other side of the market and uh, accentuates these other variables. I would also say that years ago, this was something that was easily exploitable that just mm. it, the market kind of wasn't paying attention until the last minute and then it could jump dollars just at the last minute uh but arbitrage kills arbitrage and these opportunities uh we sadly are not the only profit seekers and they it kind of you have to be earlier and more careful especially focusing on the ones that are the most marginal to the inclusion mm-hmm. uh, so it takes more skill risk earlier and uh, kind of hurts that last minute pop. Uh, it's still useful, uh, but in a way different than it was years ago. Yeah, agreed. And I mean, I think years ago, no one was really paying attention. And now even in December, <laughs> Chris is saying I was paying attention years ago. But now even in December, November, we'll start getting emails from people who are saying like, hey, look at this company. And there's there's going to be an arbitrage because next year I think it's going to qualify for, for the Russell 3000. But it can be interesting because particularly at the small end, the cutoff is generally around 150 million. And for stocks that don't have much float, it can still really create supply or demand one way or the other getting kicked off or interested. Uh, you want to talk more about that or should we go into opportunities? I just, you know, as, as opportunities over time get diluted or go away, there's nothing wrong with that. Just make sure you have a big uh, pile of money left over to show for it. <laughs> uh, agreed. Having a big pile of money is always nice. But let's talk about where we're seeing opportunity sure. here. And I, th- I think we do have two kind of unique ones mm-hmm. that uh, even in the context of a somewhat picked over arbitrage opportunity, these are unique and exploitable. So I'll start with Zedge, which is a company we've thought about and talked about a lot a lot recently uh zedge was a spin-off it was spun out of idt earlier this month mm-hmm. and j- normally when a company is spun out of a company in the russell 3000 the russell will keep it until the reconstitution so it kind of gets an opportunity to establish a normal trading pattern uh in this case it was spun off at the beginning of the reconstitution month so it was immediately kicked out of the indexes so it was never able to establish kind of a normal trading market and that sent shares you know down on almost unlimited selling pressure from 750 the day they were spun out to today's price a little bit under five dollars it was expelled during freshman orientation exactly exactly uh and, and all there were some other reasons to think the selling pressure might have been worse you know idt was a member of the russell 3000s edge is getting kicked out but idt was also kind of a deep value high dividend play with the five percent dividend yield and zedge is going to be a high growth uh startup-like company with no dividend yield. So there's a lot of reasons to think the IDT shareholder base wouldn't really want Zedge anyway. Uh, you know, I'll note it's a 50 million market cap company, so it's e-liquid. That's obviously why it's getting kicked out of the Russell 3000. But we think there's a lot of opportunity here. You know, they've got, it's an app that has over 30 million monthly active users, 200 million downloads in its history, 90 million active downloads. And for less than 50 million to get that many monthly active users, there aren't many apps that have that. And most of the ones that do, you know, their market cap is measured in the hundreds of millions or billions of users, not billions of dollars of market cap, not 
30, 40, 50 million. Go ahead. As one of the most elderly people in this office, when I learned that we were going to invest in a wallpaper company, <laughs> I thought, finally, it's something I really know what it means. <laughs> uh, some old, but this is wallpaper for your phone and also the idea of a ringtone company. I just thought that that was kind of possibly preposterous, but this is a real thing and it's a super valuable little business and uh, they could grow a lot from there and they could kind of add on other things over time too. Yep. So uh, I'll just note that one of our summer analysts uh, posted an article on Seeking Alpha today. So if anyone's interested, it talks a lot more about the longer term opportunity and how Mm -hmm. this could be kind of a really big home run if some of the options that they've got baked into the business play out. So if anyone's interested in that, they can go check that out. And I'll turn it over to you to talk about uh, stocks that have recently been added to the index that could also be takeover candidates. Sure. So Leaving's Edge, which was an opportunity on the way in for something that was perhaps uh, underpriced because of this, will switch over to CHMG, uh, uh, Shimung Financial, uh, uh, added Friday. Uh, very low institutional ownership, which I believe will change over time. Kind of blah uh, value, one times book. Boy, do I like paying big discounts to book, but is what it is. Uh, PE of about 13 times, uh, dividend yield of about 3.5%. Uh, but it is absolutely a takeover candidate. Uh, in the future, we think that it'll trade hands from well north of 1.5 times book, probably between 1.5 and, and 2 times book on a takeout. CEO retiring at the end of the year. Year uh, and that's often I like I like uh, CEOs with white hair or with new hobbies playing golf or fly fishing uh, and uh, this guy's uh, out of there and so we could see an opportunity uh, in the future yeah this is definitely one that could have been a big pop in years past but has been a bit of an opportunity this year and uh, just one that came very early uh, as it was correctly rumored uh, and that rumor became priced in yeah just two quick thoughts on that so extremely low institutional ownership Mm -hmm. i think one of the thoughts there is you get added to the Russell 3000, you're in it in an index, and that means institutions can kind of start taking a look at you. Yeah. And over the next couple of months, institutional ownership will hopefully increase, which can add a little tailwind to the stock. And on the CEO, the gray hair, it's such a great point, especially in insurance and banking. You can't do a deal without access to the other party's books to right. kind of look at all their loans, all their provisions and everything. And to do that, you need the CEO to cooperate. And older CEOs who are about to retire might just, you know, they might not trust their kind of successor and they're the most likely to sell. It's mattered even more in the last couple of years in a, a zero interest or very low interest rate environment where the relationship between a lot of middle-aged and somewhat older CEOs between their salary and their savings has totally changed, mm-hmm. where that salary has become much more important to them than it might have been in prior uh, economic environments. Because their checking account isn't yielding anything anymore. And so they just hold on to those jobs, even jobs they weren't really planning on holding on to. Great. All right, so with all of that discussed, let's turn over to Bitcoin a bit. It's an area you've talked and written about a lot, and I'll just provide the background and then you can... T- uh, hop in. The reason we're kind of thinking about it now, you know, we talked about the Brexit on Friday. Markets have been in turmoil since then. The S&P is kind of down 6% in two days. And the resulting volatility has seen a jump in, you know, gold's gone up 5%. But very interestingly, Bitcoin has served as one of those kind of flight to safety things as well. And it's been tracking the price of gold and it's up about 5% over the past couple of days as well. 
Uh, so there's been a lot. We, you've spent a lot of time thinking, talking, writing about this. And why don't you take us through the investment thesis with Bitcoin as kind of a dollar alternative? Well, when uh, describing people who invest in mutual conversions, I've, I and my compatriots have been described as a bunch of nerds profiting from a loophole in tender documents. Investors in Bitcoins have been described as mainly a gimmick favored by geeks who want to revolutionize the world. I don't know why we go from nerds to geeks <laughs> on Bitcoin, uh, but uh, uh, it is a, a weird asset class. Uh, certainly, uh, you, you need to be very careful before getting cornered in a drinks party by somebody obsessing over a Bitcoin because it can be a long description. But in any event, it is uh, something that I've invested in from the very beginning, I believe. Um, and I think it's a reasonable allocation for at least some of somebody's uh, cash. I'm a big believer in cash. I think average investors should probably have between 20 to 30% of their money in cash. And I think a 10% allocation or something like that in, in Bitcoin is uh, sensible. So just doing the math there, 20 to 30% in cash, 10% in Bitcoin, 2 to 3% in Bitcoin is kind of what you're suggesting here. Absolutely right. And uh, I think that if you look at it, uh, it's similar to gold in that it's kind of inverse uh, to uh, confidence in government and central banks. Uh, as people have very high confidence, uh, if and when anybody had high confidence in central bankers and government-backed uh, fiat currency, uh, there would be no particular reason for this. Uh, I think if you had a gold or a, a kind of transparent and sound uh, currency, there would be no particular reason for this. It is convenient. Uh, it has some advantages, but it's mostly... Uh, a bet on skepticism and, uh, of your own and others uh, in central banking. And, and that's really the thing. I, I think the thing that appeals to so many people is even better than gold. Like the reason gold has such a store of value mm -hmm. appeal in people's minds is A, they think, you know, this is what was used in the 1500s as currency. But B, you know, there's only a finite amount of gold on the planet. Yes. Uh, and with Bitcoin, there's only a finite amount of Bitcoin. Currently, it's growing, but you know the you know how much Bitcoin will grow. And at some point, I think it's in a couple of years that Bitcoin new Bitcoin production completely stops. So it's not something you know. It's when people really fear central banks are going to do kind of the helicopter money thing and destroy the value of. Uh, the dollar, the pound, whatever the fiat currency is, that that's when people really flock to gold and uh that's when people flock to gold, Bitcoin, and these yeah, things. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, if you look at gold, uh it's very finite in terms of its uh its existence on the earth's crust. Uh if you look at gold mining and production, uh I guess I guess I'm not only a weird libertarian, but I'm a weirder environmentalist libertarian that would say if we had properly internalized cost of all the negative externalities of gold mining, there would be almost none going forward. And I guess I own some gold miners, so that's not a very self-seeking thing to say. But, you know, massively polluting and generally throws arsenic into the water and so forth. If you really forced mining to pay for that, you would have to hand in all the gold that you were getting. And, and the great thing about Bitcoin is, you know, that it's it's there. There's no production cost. Well, there you have to run the computers to keep it, but there's not really a ton of production cost. You know exactly what it is, and there's there's no real cost to storage as well, right? Like no. gold, if you have more than a coin or two, you kind of have to hire the security guards Insurance and lock it and in. so yeah. forth. You have kind of a negative carry of maybe about a percent a year, which can be substantial uh, by the time you ins insurance and, and and guards and so forth. Um, a Bitcoin almost uh, environmentally. Debatable, but almost fairly clean environmentally. Yeah, uh, it is Iceland's 
biggest energy user right mm-hmm. now as mm-hmm. the mining, but still uh, clean, uh, safe, uh, and uh, low cost storage. Um, and it's very transparent. You can do the math on the supply. Yep, great. So I, I think that's uh, kind of it on Bitcoin. We hit the rest of the reconstitution. So I'm going to say that's all the time for today, if that's good with you. Okay. All right, so that's all the time for today. Before we hit our disclosures, just a quick reminder, if you like this podcast, please be sure to follow and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Audioboom. If you have any feedback for us, please feel free to email it to us at podcast at rangelycapital.com. Disclosures, I am long Zedg. Chris, I think you're long CHMG. Zedge and Bitcoin, is that right? Correct. All right, perfect. Those are disclosures, and we will talk to you later this week.